0: Hi, I'm Andalisi. Welcome to episode 13 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with Prince's longtime audio engineer, Susan Rogers. We recorded this conversation in front of an audience at Willis Show Bar in Detroit in May of 2019. Please put your hands together for Susan Rogers. You, thank you. Susan. <laughs> so this morning, I should tell you where we were. We went to the Motown Museum this morning. And Susan got a private tour with Paul Reiser Sr., no less. Yeah. Um, who, those of you who know Motown know that he wrote the horn and string arrangements for countless um, Motown songs. And so he was so gracious and came out today. What did you think of that space?
1: It was worse than I thought it would be, which made it, uh, let me qualify, better than I thought it would be. So I, we had been talking the night before about yeah. studios, and you want a studio that is not too clean because it feels sterile, but not too grungy because it feels like you might pick up something. <laughs> and you just want a place that feels musical, and I was thrilled that that room just felt Like what I hoped it would, which is you get there and and it feels a little bit dirty and a little bit funky and not not finished. And you know how um, we talk about music and we say it's music is an expression of life. Life's not clean. Life's not perfect. Life's not pretty. I mean, it can be, but it can also be kind of you know kind of funky too. The music we make should express life. That studio expressed life. It was I thought it was great. It was literally
0: unforgettable. And this is the beginning of a, a little studio tour you're going to take yourself on, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, w- when I was a kid, I listened to so much music and uh, fantasized about what those studios looked like. And uh, I have spent so many hours of my life imagining what Motown looked like or what the Stacks studio look like, or down there at Muscle Shoals, Fame Studio, and Sun Studio, and where Al Green recorded, Royal Studio. And I'm gonna see it this summer, going on a studio crawl, and uh, I can hardly wait. That's pretty great. Yeah, it's gonna be great. When Susan got
0: in my car yesterday, we immediately started talking. One of the things we talked about was how we consume music. And we talked about the different kinds of brains people have and how they consume music, how musicians who start playing music when they're very, very young, and how they process music throughout their life. So a lot of what Susan does is this kind of work, which is absolutely fascinating. She's a scientist, basically.
1: Um, So can you talk a little bit about that, Susan? Yes. um, My colleague, I suppose I'll talk about him a little bit later too, Tommy Jordan from uh, Gagita. Tommy used to say, anything you do a lot, you get good at, so be careful what you do a lot. Uh, He is absolutely right. So when when human beings are, are small, our auditory system is developing and it's actually finished with its musical development by age 11. The auditory path takes a long time from birth till age 11 before the clay is kind of in place. If we have music lessons when we are children before the age of 11 or so and if that musical training persists for five years or more, we develop what scientists call the musician's brain. And what that means is the uh, auditory nerve bundle coming from each cochlea and going up here to the cortex, it's a, let's call it a bundle of 30,000 wires. But if you've had musical training, the wires grow additional branches and they grow thicker and stronger and the nuclei get fatter and there are more cells and things in there. So what ends up happening is that people with the musician's brain have the capacity to listen to music analytically. They can um, respond faster and with greater accuracy to subtle differences in sounds. They can pull out the individual pitches and chords, and and just because they become auditory athletes. They've got a stronger infrastructure. The rest of us, myself included, uh, who did not take those years of music lessons, we develop... Um, the capacity to listen synthetically to music as a global whole. Um, I was worried that I wouldn't have a career in music that would go very far because I was a non-musician. But then I had uh, the great good fortune before Prince to work with uh, Gus Dudgeon, the record producer Mm. who did all of those Elton John records. And Gus was a non-musician. And I had the courage one day to ask him, Gus, how did you do all those Elton records like, and the zombies and all that without being a musician? And he said, I didn't need to be. The musicians were on the other side of the glass. They needed a non-musician in the room. So that gave me uh, a little bit of hope. So I, I can only listen synthetically to the global whole, but uh, I'm, I'm still a good listener. LAUGHTER I think I think everybody
0: in this room would call themselves a good listener. You know, everybody in here consumes music, and I just find it fascinating that we consume music differently, which is so interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very fascinated in that topic, and I am currently mulling uh, the idea of the musicianship of listening. Um, like these paintings here on the wall, if we all left the room and turned out the lights, they'd still be there. But music doesn't get transferred onto a storage medium like that, that we can consume in in one instantaneous moment. Music unfolds over time. So we say that time is the canvas on which music is painted. And uh, in order then to exist, music needs a brain. It needs a brain to listen to it and keep track of it over time. So that makes it slightly different from other art forms. the, the, the listening to music is part of how music lives. It can't live unless someone is listening to it. Ergo, <laughs> uh, musicianship might be considered to include the component of listening. You
0: said today that, um, and tell me if I have this right, that our auditory sense processes the world faster than any other sense we have.
1: Actually, yes, yeah. I, I learned that recently, and I thought that was pretty great. Our fastest sensory modality is sound processing. Uh, we evolved to be that way because uh, it served our ancestors. If you were walking along and you hear a funny noise in the bushes, you want to get the hell out of the way without taking the time to turn around and look to see what it was. So it's a it's a fairly the auditory system is fairly crude, at least compared to vision, but it's super fast. All right, I want to jump forward to um,
0: before you met Prince and what you were doing with your career at that time.
1: I started in 1978 in Hollywood. I started as an audio technician, uh, well aware that I was not a musician and uh, didn't didn't want to be, but I wanted to be where records were being made. I, I wanted to be a part of it. Uh, So I got very, very fortunate. There was a position, an entry-level position, open at a company called Audio Industries. They sold and serviced MCI consoles and tape machines, and I was hired as their trainee, and they taught me to repair consoles and tape machines in the greater Los Angeles area. So that's what I was doing. Then after that, I was with them uh, a few years, and up the street was a studio owned by Crosby, Stills & Nash, and it was breaking down a lot. So this was... (laughs) This was 1980, 1981, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash were still of that era of rock stars. And rock stars of that era consumed a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol, and they were no exception, Uh, They and the clients who frequented that studio. So the equipment was breaking down a lot. So I said yes to their offer, and I, I came and I joined them, and I was their studio maintenance tech, and that's where I was in 83 when Prince found me. So was it an ad that was
0: put out that you answered an ad or somebody told you Prince was looking for somebody?
1: No, it wasn't actually an ad, but it was the grapevine, the professional Mm -hmm. grapevine. So Prince had just come off the 1999 tour, and he was about to embark on Purple Rain, the album and the movie. And uh, he knew his life, his operation was going to get much bigger. So he asked his management to find him a technician. And he said, get me someone from New York or L.A. He wanted someone who had been in the industry. So uh, his management contacted Westlake Audio in Los Angeles. They, uh, Glenn Phoenix from Westlake Audio goes back to the tech shop and he says, Hey, boys, anybody interested in getting a job and moving to Minnesota and going to work for this new young artist named Prince? And the guys, you know, they're not going to, these LA techs, they're not going to leave Los Angeles uh, to go work for some guy in Minnesota. But I had uh, my former boyfriend, John Sicchetti from Boston, was uh, the chief tech at Westlake. And he knew I was a huge Prince fan. So he called me up, and with that Boston accent, he just went, Sue, your dream job. Sue, (laughs) Prince is looking for a technician. Your dream job is waiting for you. Sue, call Glenn. Call him right now. It's your dream job. (laughs) And it it was my dream job. Uh, 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 If I had written on a piece of paper what would be your greatest dream, it would have been to work for Prince. And it happened. So last night,
0: uh, when Susan was getting out of the car, she said, um, "Nothing is off limits. You can ask me anything you want about Prince, um, other than what's going on with the estate and what will, the music that will be released in mm-hmm. the future." And then she said, when we were at dinner, uh, she said, "I am a soldier for Prince, and I will continue to
1: tell his story." Thank, thank you for that. And I, I do want to say, after he passed away, of course, all of us were just dumbstruck. You know, we, we didn't know. And I suppose, you know, if we want to talk about his passing, we will. But during his life, he, um, as you know, was so careful about what information he disseminated to others what what he wanted us to know. But there were reasons why he kept things to himself because it facilitated his career. It it behooved him to keep things to himself. But now that he's gone, uh, the game is reset. And after doing a lot of really careful thinking about this, I really do believe that the best thing I can do for him now, and all of us who knew him can do for him now, is to talk about him. I think the next generation should know who he was, because he was great, and he deserves to be known. Um, This feels like the right thing to do. So thank you very, very, very much for asking me. And thank you for your interest in his stories. you're helping his legacy to live on. Without that interest, it, it, he wouldn't be remembered and he deserves to be. Yeah, thank you.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the first meeting with Prince. Did you interview with him or did you just get hired no, and then you no, showed up? No, uh, I interviewed of-
1: with uh, Steve Farnoli, his oh, manager okay. and Steve says, "Okay, you'll do." And so I yeah. <laughs> yeah, get the job. <laughs> And uh, moved out to Minnesota from California, left everyone I'd ever known. And um, when I think back on it now, I don't know how I had the guts, but you know, when you're young, you, you, don't, know. you don't know anything. <laughs> so I was leaving not just all the people I knew, but the whole L.A. support system. The Mm -hmm. tech shop and the parts and the equipment and the expertise and the knowledge base, everything. And this is, you know, there's no cell phones or computers. So I'm thousands of miles away working for a young man who's on his way to becoming one of the biggest stars in the world. If you had put it to me like that, (laughs) I would have been terrified. But at the time, I was thinking, yeah, this will be great. (laughs) Because if it it doesn't work, you know, I just go home, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. The first time I actually met him, I had been working for him about a week. So I was hired, and I moved out there. And the first thing I needed to do was, in his home studio, this is before Paisley Park Studios was built, in his house on Kiowa Trail in Chanhassen, downstairs, there were two bedrooms. His bedroom, the master bedroom, separated by a small uh, it was just a landing for a staircase and then on the other side was another small bedroom and that's where his his recording console was and the tape machine and some outboard gear and the big monitors in there. It was just a small bedroom. So my job was to pull out an old console that was in there, put in a new one he had just bought, install it, hook up the wires, test it, repair the tape machine. He had left me a list and Take care of all that stuff and that took about a week and while i was doing that i could hear him right above me the floor right above is where the kitchen met the dining room and the living room in this suburban home and the piano was right there in the dining room and i could hear him up above me for hours playing through Purple Rain and The Beautiful Ones and Computer Blue and just waiting, waiting, waiting for his studio to be ready. But I hadn't met him yet. I'm just hearing this figure up there playing and singing. If you've heard the album 1983, A Piano and a Microphone, mm-hmm. that's from that era. You'd hear so that he all day. he recorded it there? Yeah, yeah.
0: Was that on a cassette or something, or was this? I I
1: believe that was before it was recorded before I joined him. I believe it was recorded in June. The technician at the time, Don Batts, Mm -hmm. I believe, put up multi-track tape, or probably not multi-track. It was probably just a quarter-inch two-track tape, direct to two-track. Because I think you can hear them say, "Prince is asking someone to turn down the lights," Mm -hmm. and I think that would have been Don. Mm Anyway, so I was there. After about a week, I I was finally done, and I called Sandy Scipione, who was Prince's personal assistant, and I said, Sandy, can you tell him I'm done? And uh, she did, and he came downstairs, and I met him on the landing. So I'm standing on the landing, and he's on the stairs in front of me, and he just launched straight in with, did you do this, and what's happening with that, and what's going on with this, and asking questions. Were you intimidated? Well, not really, um, (laughs) but I was was brave. I knew what I was in for (laughs) <laughs> did, you know, it was Prince, and my job was to do my job. And he, he asked the, these questions, and then he says, Okay, well, you know, we'll start tomorrow, come back at. And he gave me a time, and he turned around to leave. And a little voice inside me just said, Don't let it start like this. Because it just felt wrong, like he hadn't even met me, and I'd come 2,300 miles, I left everyone. You know, And I just thought, this is not good. Don't let it start like this. So I stopped him, and he's going up the stairs. And I said, Prince. He stopped, and he turned around. And I just went, and I stuck out my hand. And I said, I'm Susan Rogers. <laughs> and he got that look on his face that I would come to see many times where he's about to laugh, but he doesn't want to ruin the dignity of the moment. <laughs> so He just kind of, he looked bemused. And he said, I'm Prince. And he put out his hand. <laughs> And we shook hands and kind of did a little bow, like, okay. In hindsight, I'm really glad we did that. I mean, that's saying, like, okay, in this artificial construct, you're the boss and I'm the employee. You can fire me at any time, I can quit at any time. This is a social artificial construct. On a human scale, we're equal. We're both human beings. Let's acknowledge that, and then we'll play this game Mm -hmm. from there. And and that made it easy. I think I was happy to be in my role, and he was happy to be in his. So that worked out.
0: What about the first session? Oh, ho, 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 ho. <laughs> here's what it felt like. The first
1: tape. He... Wait,
0: before, I ask, before I answer this, I have a question. Did you think you were hired to maintain his equipment, or did you think you were being hired to be his audio engineer? Oh goodness!
1: If they had told me I was going to be his engineer, I would have fainted. Oh, oh no. So you thought
0: you were there just to maintain his equipment? No, just they hired me as
1: a technician. Yeah. Oh. Oh, this should be good. Okay. Go right. Ahead. <laughs> so, the first tape that he had me put up was "Darling Nikki," <laughs> and I was alone in the room with <laughs> "Darling Nikki." He had just he had just finished it. And I'm a Prince fan. Who, I've got all these records. I've seen him live and I'm like, oh, oh I just I can't believe it. Wait till oh, people. And you're like looking around, like, is there anybody else in this room? Like, do you guys, is there anybody here? Do, can you believe this? <laughs> this is just amazing. And that feeling of people are gonna hear this. This gonna be great. I can't believe I'm the first one to hear it. Just, it was just it was crazy great. But the first session I did. He had me put up a multi-track, and the song was Mia Boca on Jill's album. Jill was coming in to do a vocal, and he asked me to set up a vocal mic. Technicians uh, repair the equipment. They know the equipment, but they don't use the equipment. Um, So it would be like asking the person who sets up a movie camera to just go ahead and be the cinematographer on this Harry Potter movie. (laughs) You just don't do that. But anyway, he asked me to set, set up the mic, and, well, he's my boss, so I set it up, and... And uh, he asked me to, you know, route the microphone through such and such a preamp and get this reverb, and the whole time I'm thinking, any minute now an engineer's going to walk in the door, and I'm really going to have to explain to this engineer, I'm sorry, I wouldn't normally have done this, but you weren't here. And Prince (laughs) asked me to, so I had to. And I'm trying to think, who's this guy going to be, and what am I going to say to this guy? And finally, we're like ready to go, and uh, he gave me some instruction, and and I had to ask him, I said, well, who's going to record it? And he said, "You, <laughs> okay? <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's that's what's going to happen." <laughs> and I, I just, yeah, you, uh, I was asking you a rhetorical question, so I just jumped into that chair, and that's when I realized I don't think he probably doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know. Uh, he did know the difference between a technician and an engineer, but in his world, um, he needed. So He wanted so few people to be around. He, he worked so privately and in such isolation that it, the fewer people, the better. And if he had someone that he could communicate with and that one person could do the job of six, he'll take that one person.
0: So you start recording him and you're learning as you go. And he was patient with that?
1: Yes, uh, he was. He was. It, it took a minute f- for us to find our rhythm. It took a minute for me to be able to show him what I was capable of. I'm greatly indebted to Jesse Johnson. Uh, Mm -hmm. Prince went out to Los Angeles to handle some business, and he let Jesse use his home studio. And it was Jesse from The Time, The Times guitar player, who Jesse just sat down there with me and said, let me show you the ropes. This is how Prince likes his hi-hat to be panned. This is the tone he likes on his guitar. This is the reverb you always use for this. This is Prince's sound. So I knew the equipment, like the back of my hand, that was not a problem. What I didn't know was the artistry of it, and Jesse taught me that. So by the time Prince came back from L.A. a few days later, I was um, much more up to speed. Let's talk about um, the art
0: of being an engineer and when you're setting up microphones. Because one of the things that I heard you say quickly was all of the things that an engineer is considering when they're getting ready to record somebody, and when, like, you were just talking about the millions of decisions that an engineer makes, and I wanted you to share a little bit about that, because I thought that was fascinating. It isn't just setting up microphones. It is a series of considerations.
1: Right. When engineers, producers, mixers, record makers, we keep a running stream of decision-making going, and that decision-making is uh, mediated by our own internal categories, our psychological boundaries. So you'll listen to a singer. You'll hear her speak. You'll hear her warm up her voice. And you quickly have to make a decision as to which microphone will be best. Should it be a tube mic? Should it be a dynamic? Should it be a condenser? And you're mentally doing the math to imagine the transfer function between this source and this receiver because they all have different characteristics, right? So if I combine the, if I put up this mic, okay, I think that'll be the right thing for her and I won't have to waste her time trying out different microphones. And now the next decision is what preamp should it be? And how much gain do you want? How much headroom do you need? And then what reverb should it be? And once you've chosen the reverb device, should it be a hall or should it be a chamber or should it be a plate? So all of these decisions you're making as a running stream, Based on things you've heard in the past and what you think will work for this particular record. You're doing it in real time but um, it's, it's trickier than it appears on the surface.
0: Coming up next, Susan Rogers talks about how Prince records his music, his self-imposed grueling schedule, and the rehearsals for the Purple Rain Tour. I'm Ann DeLisi. Here's the conclusion of part one of my conversation with Susan Rogers. So, those of you who don't know, when when Prince was being signed to Warner Brothers, they were like, Who is this guy? Why are we going to sign him? And then he was like, Well, I want to make all the records and I want to produce everything. And what he ended up doing, my understanding is, is they went to see him work. And so Prince said, Okay. Here is here's the drums, and he would go sit down and play. And then here's the bass, and then he'd go sit down and play. And here's the guitar, and then he'd play that. And then he would sing to prove to them that he was thoroughly capable of producing his own record. And so I wanted to ask you, um, now that you're his engineer, when he goes in to record and build a song, was it always the same way? Would he say, here is the rhythm tracks first, And would he go typically and sit down and play everything? So how did. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in the mobile app.
1: Prince, build a song so songs would kind of be broadly speaking in of two different types if it was if it were to ultimately become like a pop song or uh, or a ballad beautiful ones computer blue pop life it would start on piano and he'd write the chord changes and write the melody and he would come into the studio with i would you'd hear him you'd hear him on piano practicing it first and then he'd he'd write out the lyrics he'd come in with the lyric sheet and then if it was going to be acoustic drums you'd take that lyric sheet tape it up to a mic stand in front of the drum kit he would sit at the drum kit no headphones because he's not playing to anything else no click track to help him keep time he would play the drums top to bottom but with the whole with the arrangement apparently in his head he'd play the whole drum track top to bottom in the meanwhile, what he liked to have happen was all of his instruments set up in the control room and ready to go, and that meant tuned and everything. So, so you had to make sure everything was always ready. Oh, yeah, everything had to yeah. be ready to go so that he could then come in, and as you're rewinding the tape, you hand him the bass, he plays the bass part, then he'll play the piano part or the keyboard or the electric guitar part. Then he stopped, because remember, this is the analog days, and we only worked 24 tracks, so you needed some tracks for vocals and for the backing vocals. Stop do the vocal all by himself in the control room. I'd I'd do the signal routing with the microphone in the control room like this. And there'd be the remote for the tape machine there, arm his track, put it in ready record, and he would either stand or sit at the microphone do the vocal by himself. Take the patch cord, which had been marked with a piece of tape, move it over to the next track, and record his backing vocals. When he's done with vocals, I come back into the room. We finish up as he's playing parts. I can be dialing in sounds, just trying things, you know, delays and reverbs. At this point, I knew what he liked, and so the mix is coming together as he's working. And it was pretty quiet, you I know, mean, other than the music. There wasn't a lot of talking. There's a funny moment when you make a record. As you're making a record, you really don't know what it's going to be until it reaches a certain age. I think it's a little bit like having children, <laughs> which I don't have, but you really don't know how this one's going to go <laughs> until you've seen enough. Uh, and so there's a little bit of tension there until the record finally turns a corner and you, you realize what it is. Like, well, this will be my next big single, or most likely, um, this is good. Let's just, it's it's good. It's just, it's just good. It's good. Uh, and after that, after it turned that corner, that's when he'd get talkative and he'd start talking a bit more. Sometimes he'd have people come in, whoever he was dating or band members or just whatever. So we'd work like that. And that would typically be a day. It might be 24 hours long. Uh, could be shorter. Often it was longer. If it wasn't acoustic drums, he would start with drum machine. If it wasn't that, we would work at rehearsal. This is before Paisley Park Studios was built. So... Rehearsal would start at 10 o'clock in the morning. Band would come down, the crew would be there, and the band would rehearse. And he would just have the band, Wendy, Lisa, Bobby, uh, Bobby, Mark, and uh, Matt Fink, just come up with the arrangements. And then I had a recording set up at rehearsal as well. We would record the band that way. Around the world in a day, a lot of that album was done like that. And and a good chunk of the parade album as well. Just record the band at rehearsal. They'd go home at 7 or 8 o'clock. He and I would stay up all night doing the vocals and mixing it and finishing it. It sounds like if he was awake, he was
0: working. If he was working, you were working. Yes, so you worked all the time.
1: We pretty did. Much yeah, we worked all the time. We worked when we were on tour. We, we he a, after a show he'd come off he'd come off the uh, stage and we'd either play an after party, which he'd want to have recorded, or we would uh, go into a recording studio because we'd be making records while we were on tour. So I would book a recording studio in advance, and then after a show, after a show, think about this: you're a rock star, who's done hours long sound check most people do 15 20 minutes he would sound check for hours there'd be dinner break there'd be doors he'd play a two and a half hour set in front of oh i don't know 15,000 people the night was young (laughs) instead of going out to party all night his favorite thing to do was go to a recording studio and he'd he'd start work he'd clock out midnight all right did my job Let's have some fun. We'd be in the studio until early the next morning to get a little bit of sleep or get on the bus and go to the next city. I want to play, um, and Susan, I don't know if you've heard this, but Sean,
0: I want to play this part of a rehearsal that Prince did. I think this was in Japan. So you'll hear him calling out chord changes. He would sound check for hours.
1: Yeah. Uh, I heard a story, uh, a Jimi Hendrix documentary, uh, one of his former girlfriends said Jimmy would wake up in the morning, put on his guitar, to play his guitar for just a few steps as he walked from the bedroom into the bathroom. <laughs> like, he was constantly, he constantly had an instrument in his hands, and that was Prince. It's, if he was awake and didn't have to be on a phone call or on a date or something like that, he was playing music. Yeah, well, he stopped sometimes, <laughs> but, yeah.
0: Um, I want to play this clip, and I want to start talking about the band and rehearsing um, mm-hmm. in preparation for Purple Rain. So this is Prince, believe it or not, on The View. Um, and the first, the first person you're going to hear is Joy Behar. Ask him a question. And then um, it goes into um, him talking about, I think this is a clip where he talks to uh, Tavis Smiley as well, and Susan, I'll want you to respond
1: to this. I was reading that, like you'll go out there with 300 songs that you might decide at the last minute to perform. Uh-huh. That's very uh, risky, is it not? The whole band has to be in sync with you, right?
2: Well, they they, sure they, re- they rehearse a lot, uh, it's a well-oiled machine. Uh-huh. Um, one of my favorite band leaders is Bruce Springsteen, I've watched him yeah. many years, and uh, I've uh, I was backstage one night and I saw him turn around and give a cue and the band switched on a dime. I used to see James Brown do that a yeah, lot too. So wow. You, you learn from the best. Wow. You know. Your audience is very musically sophisticated. It's one thing mm-hmm. to love music. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to have an audience of fans that is really very sophisticated about music. Yeah, a lot, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the people that come see us now. Um, their parents listen to real music, Mm -hmm. real songwriting, real uh, musicianship, and uh, they respect somebody who takes their craft seriously. And I grew up that way, so, you know, when we do our shows, I try to have the best musicians I can find with me at that particular time, and uh, like I said, we don't play down to them. We don't, um, you know, we're just not, it's just not about a party you know, that's gonna be anyway, if it's good music. Uh-huh. But, you know, you you, you, have to, you have to challenge them. And I, I think that's lacking in music uh-huh.
1: today. I love he- hearing him uh, say we and us. That was so much a characteristic of him when I was with him. He always talked about us and we, he was so inclusive. He included so many others in his art.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the band. Were they really prepared to do would he pull songs from
1: anywhere and they had to be ready? Oh, yeah, they had to be. But jazz musicians do. Like yeah, a jazz musician true. has to know the Great American Songbook and at, at any moment someone might call out, you know, Autumn Leaves or something like that, you just have to know how it goes. Or they wouldn't even, you know, maybe they just launch into it and you have to know where you are. So that wasn't too unusual. Prince's father was a jazz musician and he expected them to, to be that adept, yeah. So when it
0: came time for Purple Rain the rehearsals happened before he had his own rehearsal space. So I want you to talk, if you could, In the Susan, time when that. I was
1: with him, from 83 until late 87, we had three different, in, in series, we had uh, different warehouses. And these were just small manufacturing warehouses where they had, I think one was a tire factory and the other was, I don't know, they put together motors or something like that. And so these places had no... There was no treatment, no acoustic treatment on the ceiling or the walls or the floor or anything. You'd just take one part of the room and you'd set up the risers and set up the PA and that's where the band would be and lay a piece of carpet on the floor and that's where the recording console would be and just roll the stuff up and plug in the mics. And yeah, We didn't win any prizes for engineering because we <laughs> didn't have, at those warehouses, we didn't have the best signal path, but uh, we had a space that facilitated music making. That's mm-hmm. all that mattered to him. So he had the most incredible band. I mean the, the revolution.
0: They were pretty damn strong, yeah. They were all on their game. What were those rehearsals like? Was it like a full blown show? Would Prince dance as much and sing at full voice? How did he, when they were getting ready to go, especially for Purple Rain, what was that like?
1: Yeah, choreography was a huge part of it, but it took a while um to come up to come up with arrangements and to come up with the set and he worked songs for hours just hours and hours and hours I think in part for the sheer joy of it but just you know just to see what the possibilities to take music and play with it and stretch it out of shape Uh, he had these great players in his band to see what Wendy is going to bring what is Lisa going to bring what is Matt going to bring and what's Mark going to bring what can we do with this how can we take it he loved uh he loved that, the play of it. And in the, he, he, as long as he had the time, he would play endlessly. But then, of course, as we got closer and we did full-on dress rehearsal, we did dress rehearsal in... Um, we had to rent the St. Paul Civic Arena for days. It may have even been a week. We also had to rent the Met Center in Minneapolis, the Metropolitan Center. So huge places. These huge places, sports stadiums he rented to do full dress rehearsal with uh, for Purple Rain for the tour. One of the reasons why he built Paisley Park Studios so that he wouldn't have to rent these places. Did
0: he have a sense, and did you have a sense, that Purple Rain was going to be the thing that would change everything?
1: I was too naive, I didn't know. I hadn't been in the business that long. I hadn't seen big hit records made, so I didn't know what it felt like or looked like when you're making one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this is my first one. But there was electricity in the air, and there was a feeling of great optimism. But there was also that, I love the phrase, the, the clear ether of youth. Your head is kind of in a little bit of a fog because you really don't know. And we were all young. We were all in our 20s. So we didn't know that this was going to work. We felt that hubris of youth, like, yeah, we're the best. But, you know, it was kind of scary. I remember Prince coming, uh, came to rehearsal one day, and he was laughing, and he said, it was right before the movie, Purple Rain had come out, and he says, oh, you guys, I can't believe. He said, I had a dream last night that those two guys, Siskel and Ebert, were on television. He <laughs> said, I had the dream that they were reviewing Purple Rain, he says, and that fat guy was tearing me apart. <laughs> And actually, Roger Ebert actually loved the film, but um, you know, uh, Prince was worried about that. He was worried. How will this go? We didn't know.
0: Um, one of the things that Susan said to me was, we talked about Prince and women and how he felt about women, and we talked about his relationship with Susan. And you said something I was so glad that you said was how he treated you. Hmm. Um, And I'd like you to talk a little bit about your relationship with him beyond you being his engineer, because he asked you for feedback and you guys were together so much. And I want you to talk about what that relationship looked like.
1: He gave me, as I saw him give other people in his employ, a great deal of respect. I always felt respected. I always appreciated how much responsibility he gave me and then didn't look over my shoulder. That was huge. Like to have someone just hand you the reins of a really big job and walk away. You got this. You know how empowering that is. He liked that, and I did too. We, we knew our roles. I knew who I was in his life and was happy to keep my relationship with him just in that role. I was his engineer. I did not try to be his friend or even pretend to be. I I was not not a musician or a partner in any way. I was happy to be in my place, so to speak. It was a good fit for me. And I think he really appreciated that. It's nice to work with people. There's something to push against when you know where something is standing. That relationship, of course, involved the two of us caring about each other and liking each other very much. Can I tell you something? I want to tell you a story. Yes. so i had been working with him uh, for about a year and we were at sunset sound working at sunset in los angeles which was your favorite favorite studio yeah Yeah, that's a place he worked a lot a wonderful studio so we're there, and I had to do something uncharacteristic. I had to take a phone call, and I normally wouldn't have had to do this, but I was buying a condominium. In, it was my first home. It was on Lake Harriet in Minneapolis, and I had to take this call. So I excused myself. I said, please forgive me, but I'm going to have to leave the room for about 10 minutes to talk with the uh, banker or the, whatever it was, the real estate agent, and then I'll take care of this business, and then, then I'll come back. And he said, Fine. So I went and took my calls and came back a few minutes later. So unbeknownst to me, while I was out of the room, he said something to Gilbert Davison. Gilbert Davison was a man who was Prince's personal assistant and handled security for him. Gilbert leaves, comes back 20 minutes later, and Gilbert's got a bottle of champagne and some glasses. Now, with Prince, he didn't drink, rarely, rarely drank. And this, and in the middle of the day, I mean, this was really unusual. We did not see champagne in the studio with Prince. So I, I wonder, what is this all, all about? And he has Gilbert open the bottle, pour the champagne in the two glasses, and he says, Prince said, when I was a kid, I used to dream that I'd have a house on Lake Harriet. He said, now I have people working for me who own a property on Lake Harriet? (laughs) And there were those moments where you had permission to look in each other's eyes and recognize, this is awesome. (laughs) We did it. It's so cool. I had a few moments with him like that, where you look at each other and you just know, yes, you're feeling the exact same thing. I did it, is what you're feeling. My dreams were so much smaller than his, but I got mine, and he got his, and we were both, you know, 27, I was 27, he was 25, we're kids, Mm -hmm. and we're like, yes. I loved those moments, there were a few of them, and that's just uh, one of those stories that illustrates um, he was human and kind, and he knew what it was like to be someone else, We didn't ask to have those moments celebrated, but he knew what it felt like, and he liked enjoying that with us sometimes. He was funny, right? He was really funny.
0: Was could he make fun of himself?
1: Oh yeah. Um, So we're at rehearsal. We're at rehearsal, and uh, this was great. It was after Sign of the Times, so we're rehearsing for the Sign of the Times tour. And Prince is right here on the microphone and just a few feet from him is a monitor mix console and Rob Cubby Colby is at the monitor mix console and I'm at my recording console over there and they're doing the cross. It starts out da 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 da, da with a guitar part and Prince sings, black day, stormy night, <laughs> and his voice cracked. <laughs> and Cubby is dying. Because he wants to laugh so badly. But Cubby's just a few feet away from Prince, and Cubby's just going. "Mm -hmm." He's like a tea kettle. He's just going to blow. And Prince is singing, and the song is sober. And Cubby's just. "Mm -hmm." And finally, Prince just stops and he goes, Laugh! Laugh! (laughs) Just laugh! (laughs) It was so funny. He was funny every day. He, he, would, he, would, he could be really annoying, too, but he was really funny. <laughs> annoying how? Well, geez. His sense of humor was um, like a 13 or 14-year-old boy's. It was really annoying. He could, like, name-calling sometimes or just saying stupid jokes, like, oh, geez, that's really mature. <laughs> but here, think about this. You're 25 years old. You're a multimillionaire. you have employees. You're from North Minneapolis. No one in your family or in your life has ever been successful, so you've never seen this done. The pressure, the weight on your shoulders. You've just told everyone that you're going to make a semi-autobiographical movie about your life. Oh, and you're 25, right? And that this record is going to be your masterpiece, and this movie's going to be great, and launch you into the stratosphere, and the rock fans are going to like you as much as the R&B fans. Think about that pressure. And that pressure was not alleviated by being mean or by being scandalous or breaking the law or doing those rock star behaviors where you throw a television out a window. When people ask me, what's one word you would use to describe Prince? I say courageous. That takes a lot of guts. And it takes a lot of brains too. To keep it together under circumstances that have cracked an awful lot of people. So yeah, if he wants to you just kind of be a brat or, or, or be a dumb or just, you know, annoy you, <laughs> even if he wants to be in one of those dark, bad moods, which sometimes you could be in, you let him, you let him. Mm-hmm. He's doing his best, and his best is really good. Speaking of that, when Susan and I were
0: talking yesterday, because she teaches at Berkeley, and she said, "What? Well, what is the comment about being good? You don't."
1: Oh yeah, uh, my friend, the record producer Greg Wells works with Katy Perry and Twenty One Pilots, and he's had a lot of hit records. And Greg came and visited with us, and he looked out at the students in the audience who had come to see him, and he said, "You guys," he said, "sitting here today, he said, you have no idea how good good is. Good in this business is really good." It's really good. My thanks to Susan Rogers
0: for sharing her memories about working with Prince. Part two of our conversation is now available as well. The Essential Conversations series is a production of Detroit's public radio station, WDET, and supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Yanda Thanks so much for listening.